This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. RPN, the Roddenberry Podcast Network. This episode of Mission Log is sponsored by Raycon. Get 15% off your order at buyraycon.com slash missionlog with the code missionlog15. That's buyraycon.com slash missionlog for 15% off Raycon wireless earbuds. This episode is also brought to you by Eagle Moss Hero Collector and their collection of exclusive Star Trek visual reference books and other great titles and gifts waiting for you at shop dot eaglemoss.com slash us slash mission use the promo code mission at checkout for 20 percent off all books and graphic novels mission log a roddenberry star trek podcast episode 364 the assignment Welcome into another episode of Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. I'm Norman Lau. And I'm John Champion. Each week on Mission Log, we examine an episode of Star Trek, picking it apart for morals, meanings, and messages, and seeing whether or not the whole thing stands the test of time. That is, we'll do all of that if you answer exactly as I say and make this easy for all of us. What? Um, what did you say? Hmm? Yeah, nothing. Just uh, just getting to the rest of the show. Today, we're talking about The Assignment, where there are just a lot of innocent engineering projects happening on board Deep Space Nine. Nothing to worry about here. Just like our podcast, finish on time and nobody gets hurt. John, I'm a little worried about you. Um, something seems a little off tonight. Maybe... Mm. Maybe I should just let people know how to reach us and then do our ad and then you can get to trivia and things will just kind of normalize a little bit. Oh, hey, Norman, Norman, are are you okay? I mean, you're starting to sound a little off. You don't want our listeners to get worried now, do you? Um, uh, let's just get the show going and not lose another minute of very, very precious time, especially when it comes to contacting us. So Mission Log relies on your participation, so that's why we want to hear from you. Help us spread the word by giving us a like or a share on Facebook or Twitter, or you'll find us at Mission Log Pod. Tell others about us there, and if you're inclined to leave us a review at Apple Podcasts, we'll be grateful, and we'll share those in a future supplemental. You can reach us on Skype at Mission Log or by calling 323-522-5641. Our email address is missionlog at roddenberry.com. And remember, we may use your comments on an upcoming episode of Mission Log. We'll cover trivia in a moment, but first, a word from the Eagle Moss Hero Collector book collection. So, Mission Log listeners are undoubtedly familiar, John, with all the various collections of model starships, like, collected and studied and gleaned from every corner of the Star Trek universe by Eagle Moss Hero Collector. I know I have shelves <laughs> of you and me them, both. Occupying, them. Yes. <laughs> occupying all of my walls. <laughs> And but but here's the thing: it's like they may know all of the official starships, but they may not know 
about how wide and ever-expanding the variety is of the officially authorized special edition of books. Whoa. Whoa. Yes, books. B-O-O-K-S, <laughs> books. By Eagle Moss and available only online at the Eagle Moss shop. So if you pay a visit to the exclusive Star Trek bookshop at shop.eaglemoss.com slash US slash mission, you'll discover a range of definitive visual guides that go deep into the Star Trek history and canon as any books ever published. Each extensively researched and developed by Eagle Moss Hero Collector under the supervision of Star Trek expert Ben Robinson. And uh, Ben is one of my favorite Star Trek experts. I'll just get that out of the way right away. That is my bias toward Ben. Um, you know, Norman, I, I'm sure that you were like me as a kid. You had that Franz Joseph technical manual. You just poured over every page and you thought, well, it can't get any better than this. Now, this is not to diss those amazing technical manuals of the 70s. But these just go like such a step beyond. They are so well produced. I was thumbing through some today. Uh, you have the Shipyards collections, which present a timeline of literally almost every ship that has ever appeared in Star Trek TV shows and movies. Original series up to Discovery, or if you want to go backward, go back to Enterprise. Um, some of these volumes are dedicated exclusively to Starfleet ships, while others focus on, well, other members of the Federation, like Vulcans, Andorians, Tellarites, Bajorans. What I love is you discover so much. It'll take you through different eras, like of the Enterprise, and focus in on, on very specific details, like uh, from different times, maybe different bridge configurations, layout. There's just so much in-depth story that they give you. Um, so those books definitely go where few have gone before, deep behind the scenes of conception, development, and detail of the ships from every era. And look, it doesn't just stop there. There are graphic novels collections. I was also reading through the original City on the Edge of Forever, which then was illustrated, probably my favorite illustration of a Star Trek graphic novel is uh, how they handled that. And I love the way that Eagle Moss packages it, where you'll have a hardbound copy along with supplemental material. In that case, they happen to bind it along with uh, a reproduction of one of those original gold key comics. It really is mm -hmm. just perfect for a collector like me, and it looks great on a shelf. You know, a lot of us want to collect, especially those of us of a certain age, we want to collect some of the comics that we've lost mm -hmm. or that have been uh, mistreated <laughs> in some way or another. Yes. Right? My target, my, my comic book. So you get these in pristine collector's formats. They're fantastic, and they have so many different varieties for every Star Trek fan of every generation to choose from. Plus, especially for listeners of Mission Log, use code MISSION at checkout and receive 20% off all books and graphic novels. So browse around the shop and please visit shop.eaglemoss.com slash us slash mission and use promo code mission at checkout for your 20% discount. And now because we want to keep things moving on time, precious time, as I said before, John, please keep us on track for this week's trivia for today's episode. You got it, Norman. Today's story is credited to Robert Lederman and David R. Long. Robert is a bit of a Star Trek triple threat. He started way back on TNG as an editor and continued that gig right on through Enterprise. Along the way, though, he got to try out directing by helming both I, Borg and Force of Nature on TNG. Then he started his writing credits with this episode. 
Along with Robert for this episode, David R. Long has very few pro credits, uh, just once before on DS9 with Improbable Cause, and then one more coming up on Voyager. The teleplay is by Bradley Thompson and David Weddle. Uh, we talked about these two not long ago. They shared a credit on Rules of Engagement in Season 4 of DS9. It was David who bonded with Ira Stephen Bear as fans of Sam Peckinpah. When he was hired for a staff position, he was able to bring along his writing partner, Bradley. The idea for this story, of course, was a little different as pitched. We would have been more focused on Keiko in a sort of hostage situation, Hans Beimler had the inspiration to flip it around and make Chief O'Brien the focus. Everyone has a hand in it, though. It was Rene Echeverria who wanted to shift the alien possession from something new, as envisioned in the script, to something that would fit in with the already established aliens and mythology of the series. It happened to be Robert Hewitt Wolfe who had conceived of a paw wraith way back in season one for his script for The Nagus. Now, that bit didn't make it to air, but the idea stuck. Maybe, just maybe, we will hear from them again. This was directed by Alan Croker. Uh, well, here we have a brand new name along our trek. Alan had been kicking around as a writer, director, and cinematographer since the early 1980s, but this, being his first Star Trek episode, kicks off a long career with the franchise. He has a lot of other genre series work under his belt, like Tech War, Earth Final Conflict, Andromeda, many, many more. With Trek, though, he will go on to direct a dozen more DS9, then Voyager, then Enterprise, and he has the distinction of directing the season finale for each of those series. Now, you notice, you may notice, <laughs> that they're singing For He's a Jolly Good Fellow to Miles, and not Happy Birthday. Well, at the time of production, Happy Birthday was still under copyright, and they would have had to have paid a license fee for that song. That was overturned in 2016, and Warner, that owned the rights, had to pay back some $14 million in license fees that had relatively recently been collected when they were denied an extension on their copyright. By contrast, For He's a Jolly Good Fellow is a perfectly safe bet. It dates back to the 18th century and is well within public domain. Now let's talk about guest stars. We really don't have much in the way of new guest stars this week. Uh, there are a handful of characters on the engineering swing team. You've got Watley, played by Patrick Egan. You've got Bajoran Takoa, played by Rosie Malik Yonan. Uh, for both, this is their only Star Trek credit. Then we've got recurring guest stars front and center for the majority of the episode. Of course, Max Grudenchik as Rom, settling into his new job. Then there's Hannah Hatai as Molly O'Brien. And of course, Rosalind Chow in the dual role of Keiko and Possessed Keiko. I just wanted to let you know, John, in my internet research about the possessed Keiko, I did read somewhere along the line that somebody called her Faco. Oh, no, you're kidding me. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> well, I guess I have to rewrite the entire uh, recap now. Hey, Bob, that's a nice space station you've got there. It'd be a shame if something had to happen to it.
Prologue. Rom comes into Quark's bar after his not-so-glamorous shift working overnight in the waste extraction systems of the station. He's an engineer now, starting from the bottom, but proud of his work and ready to enjoy a hot breakfast. Quark, of course, has to take the wind out of his brother's sails a little, chastising him for taking the menial jobs. Meanwhile, Chief O'Brien, whose birthday it happens to be, prepares to welcome Keiko back to the station after a few days on Bajor. The current crisis is that Miles, with Dr. Bashir's help, has managed to kill her bonsai trees, and neither Julian nor Molly are going to be any help to break the bad news. He'll go it alone, greeting his wife at the airlock with her favorite chocolates. She's aloof, seemingly unmoved by the news about her trees or anything else. Then she has some news for him. She's not Keiko. Well, it's Keiko's body, but possessed by an alien intelligence that demands the chief do exactly what she wants without question, or Keiko dies. At first, Miles thinks it's some kind of bizarre joke until Keiko convulses, drops to the floor with her heart stopped. When Miles reaches for his communicator, she sits up abruptly, warning him that if he tries anything, Keiko's heart will be stopped forever. Act 1. The entity in charge of Keiko lays it all out for Miles. He will follow a set of instructions, mostly messing with the station's communications and sensor relays, or else Keiko dies. And before he gets any ideas about warning his crewmates, Keiko's death can occur in a split second. Back in their quarters, Miles trying to comply, looking at technical details of Keiko's demands when Dr. Bashir drops by with a Bajoran plant to replace Keiko's dead bonsai. She graciously accepts it, even reminding Julian about the party later that night in honor of Miles' birthday. Miles is not in a party mood, but when Julian leaves, Keiko tells him that the party will go on so it doesn't raise suspicion. Now he has to go to work while she prepares for the party. We catch up with Rom, who today is assigned to the swing shift with a new group of co-workers. As he's getting to know them, the chief appears on a view screen in their meeting room with some unique orders. He wants all of them to work on inertial couplings while he's in level 5 working on the optronic integrators. That's a long way of saying he'll be busy, on his own, and not to be bothered. Once he's hidden away in a Jeffrey's tube, Miles asks the station computer for some help. First, a medical scan of Keiko to see what's wrong. Nothing. Then a series of inquiries about how long it would take to render her unconscious with various technologies, all of which would take too long before the alien entity would kill her. With no other recourse, the chief begins making adjustments to the station relays. Act 2, Welcome to the worst birthday party Miles O'Brien has ever had. Here are all of his friends, unaware of what's going on. Here's Keiko, possessed by something threatening to kill her, still playing like the gracious host. She even entertains Jake and Odo's conversation about the superstition of pa wraiths living in the caves she just visited on Bajor. Heh, <laughs> pa wraith? Don't be ridiculous. Miles is on edge. People notice and they really notice it when he crushes the whiskey glass in his hand, drawing blood. He excuses himself when Keiko comes in, telling him to get a hold of himself. The first round was just a test. Tomorrow, the real work begins. 
After the party guests are gone, Keiko reasserts herself. Miles has a busy day tomorrow with a double shift. Before going to bed, he inquires a database about Bajoran paw race, but Google comes back with entirely too many results. Being called to bed again and not wanting to raise suspicions, Miles falls asleep next to this dual entity of Keiko and whatever is inside Keiko. As he awakens the next morning, Miles instinctively reaches over to his wife, only to be startled when he remembers it's not her. She tells him to go to work, that she'll get Molly ready for school, and she rejects his attempt to get Molly to stay with friends. Molly needs her mother, after all, and she'd never do anything to harm her unless Miles forces her to. On his way to work, Miles takes a detour to find Captain Sisko, who is in Odo's security office, but before he can get there, Keiko is on the upper level of the promenade, calls Miles' name, then plummets to the floor below. Act 3. In the infirmary, Odo and Sisko are trying to understand exactly how this happened and why the chief was there in the first place. He says he was on his way to lunch, and lucky for him, Keiko is only hurt, but will survive. She's conscious and, privately, tells Miles that she knows he was going to warn Sisko. She knows everything Keiko knows about the chief, and that's a lot. Now, to prevent any more accidents, he'd better get to work, and he has 13 hours to complete a 36-hour job, not a second more. The chief starts a countdown through the station's computer, and as he starts his work, alone, Rom quite literally pops his head in to see how he's doing. All those assignments Rom was given are done. He works fast, especially when he's not distracted by others talking to him. Seeing an opportunity here, Miles says he needs Rom's help. Some top-secret modifications to the station that nobody can know about. Of course, they do know all about it, wink, wink. He just needs Rom to pretend that they don't. Got it? Good. Time to tech the tech. The clock is ticking down, but the work is getting done. Then at some point, Dax gets the chief's attention about some anomalies she spotted. After running a diagnostic, she's come to the conclusion that they have a saboteur on board. Act 4. Cisco asks O'Brien and Dax what they've found. 943 tiny alterations that don't seem to threaten the station... Who knows, it may be nothing, Miles is trying to cover. Odo thinks it has to be someone who is intimately familiar with the station, so he'll have to start narrowing it down there. A call comes in for O'Brien in the middle of all this. It's Molly and Keiko. Molly wants to know when her daddy is coming home, and Keiko reminds him precisely that it's 2 hours, 22 minutes, and 13 seconds. With time running out and Odo looking for the culprit, O'Brien sells out Rom. He's taken away to the brig while the chief stays behind to see what Rom has been up to. To his credit, Rom won't tell Odo anything, but that means the chief gets called in for a private conversation. Rom assures him that he hasn't broken, but he does wonder why all the modifications they're making would point a chroniton beam right into the wormhole. In fact, the deflector settings make the whole station into a massive chroniton emitter. Rom wants to know why they're trying to kill the wormhole aliens. Act 5. Chronotons are harmless to everyone on the station, 
But the wormhole aliens, the prophets to the Bajorans, operate in a different temporal space. Those chronotons would instantly kill them. But why? What being other than a mythological pa-wraith might want to kill the prophets? Rom might know. He's been listening to Lita tell him about Bajoran mythology. The prophets banished the false prophets to the caves on Bajor, imprisoned in crystal fire cages and forbidden to return. That's where the Bajorans got to know them as pa-wraiths. If they return to the wormhole, well, there's going to be a problem. A problem that could be resolved if a pa-wraith were to wipe out the wormhole first. O'Brien trusts Rom to stay where he is, to not say a word, so he can return to the systems he has to modify. But as soon as the chief starts up his work again, Odo catches him in the act. Sure, he stalls as long as he can while Odo spells out the evidence, but the chief is out of time, and he punches Odo out cold so he can make his escape. O'Brien calls Keiko to meet him at a runabout. He knows what she's up to, and he doesn't care. She needs a pilot, and he just wants his wife back, so he'll take her to the wormhole himself. They take off, and Miles initiates his program to get them into position. Keiko has the chief hold their course just outside the wormhole where he can open up the comlink. All those modifications to the system initiate a massive surge of chronotons shooting like lightning from Deep Space Nine. Keiko looks on with excitement that after centuries of waiting, she'll see the annihilation of the prophets in their celestial temple. With the chief's planning, though, he's aimed that comm relay directly at their runabout. Those chronotons pass directly into their ship and directly into Keiko, causing an excruciating death of the paw wraith that inhabited her body. Seconds later, Keiko is herself again, free from the visitor, and these two can return home. No actual profits were harmed in the process. Aboard DS9, the crew wait for Miles and Keiko's return, not everyone looking so happy about what has transpired. The chief has some explaining to do. But after that, at home in the O'Brien's quarters, Keiko confides in Miles what she was going through the whole time. She was aware of the being in her, but she had no control. She couldn't sense its thoughts as much as its feelings, and it was likely not going to let either of them live. She's flattered, though, how hard her husband fought for her. In the morning, Rom goes back to Quark's for breakfast, only this time it's not after the graveyard shift. O'Brien promoted him, and Rom is in after a long night of celebrating, this time for the breakfast of the day shift. The End you get a plus one sticker for inserting Tech the Tech. Ah, uh, we Tech the Tech. They tech the tech, tech the tech. We all get to Tech the Tech when somebody Techs the Tech. Well done. <laughs> that's, that's the rule. Well done. Thank you. Thank you. Because, <laughs> man, there was, uh, there, there was some tech here. There was. There was much tech. <laughs> and you teched it. <laughs> There's a great line early on, uh, right, right in the teaser. Nothing more invigorating than breakfast in a bar. Now, look, I, I can't always agree. But sometimes I really agree. I'll just leave it at that. I love the fact that Quark just pushes a few buttons and you get your your eggs, oh. your hash, and uh, your bacon. That right? I want it's that machine. Bing, bang, boom. Yeah. 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 
Uh, I love the conversation at the beginning of this episode between Quark and Rom because it was kind of like a continuation of uh, was season four's Bar Association, where mm-hmm. you know Rom fought for his his workers' rights, and now he's you know he's a he's a working man. Yeah, know? yeah. And if I if I may if I may do a, a small tribute to Rush, they call him the working <laughs> man. You know that's what Rom is. So because that's everybody knows I'm a big Rush very fan. good. Yeah. Very good. Yeah. yeah, no, that that was cool to see that 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 dynamic keeps evolving. That that Rom actually did change from that episode, Bar Association. Yeah, it's very mm-hmm. cool, and he sticks to his guns. And you know, important. Might as well just get it all out of the way. Uh, we talked about the magical breakfast machine, the replicator. Uh, but there's a lot of food talk overall in this episode. Might as well just go through it right now. You got raw slug liver. Uh, you got puree of beetle. I'm going to take a hard pass on both of those. But then. Eggs, bacon, corned beef hash. Only thing we're missing there is spam. You got pancakes, sausage, and pineapple. Great. I'm, I'm down for that, too. And he does say a lot of butter on those pancakes. Uh, there's a Klingon dish, uh, but there, there's not a lot of detail on that, other than just that it, it takes a long time to make. But very much to your point, Norman, single malt Irish whiskey, neat. That's not only does Miles get served that, uh, Dax brings him a bottle. So and plenty of it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So she she knows him. She knows him well. I I do have to wonder though. You know, for for Rom's situation here, why would there be a system in the twenty fourth century that requires anyone to be standing knee deep in waste? Right. I, you know, that just seems <laughs> like of all the things we get to work on for the next three hundred years, uh, it seems like with replicators everywhere and and mm-hmm. transporters everywhere, it seems like waste extraction and disposal really should be like day one. Hey, we're going to use this technology for that, so there doesn't have to be a guy knee deep in waste doing that. All right. So we're going to tech the tech. Okay. Again, yeah. Let's right? do it. Yeah. So we're t- we're yeah. teching the tech. So. I've read my like my Rick Sternbach and Michael Kuda Starfleet Technical Manual. I've mm-hmm. read technical manuals of other Star Trek, you know, uh, here and there. This is what I understand about matter technology, and this is waste extraction technology, right? So, as far as I understand, things are in waste extraction. Things are turned into energy. Matter is turned into energy, right? Stored in some type of energy conduit or some type of energy bank. Yeah. And then used to create things like breakfast. Sure. For Rom, yes. Right? Yes. Or, or um, you know, cake for Molly. Right. Or, or a bottle of scotch. Or a bottle, yeah. So, <laughs> right. so exactly why are they extracting waste? Yeah. Yeah, see, that's a good question. It, it, it seems like the extraction isn't, part of the system here that it really is just a a reformatting it's a a matter translator uh instead of a thing that's just yeah now look here's the thing you are on a cardassian space station they had their own systems in place before we got there but again i'm just saying from day one starfleet needs to come in and say like we're going to do our much better system of this so we we are reformatting energy into matter and matter into energy in a much more efficient less disgusting way i I mean i know that we're kind of nitpicking it a little bit naturally we're nitpicking it a lot but i know that it's to show kind of where rom is like where 
Oh yeah. Why Quark was trying to like, you know, hold the high ground on top of it and say like, yeah, you fought for your workers' right independence, but look at what it got you. Right. It got you waste extraction. Right. Exactly. Right? Yeah. yeah. Um, one of the things though, that, that kind of struck me as, as interesting. And I really tried to, to, to Google through this. Mm-hmm. So I was assumed the planet's name would be Redelia. Okay. Nothing good comes from Rudelia, <laughs> right? Because the first time I heard of the Rudelian plague was in Rules of Engagement. That was last season. And now Rudelian brain fever. Nothing oh, comes yeah. from Rudelia that's not a disease that I've referenced so far. That It has to be one of those planets where Starfleet set up the orange cones around it. They're just like, do not get near this planet. And those poor Rudelians... They're like, anytime they do get a visitor, it's like, oh, sorry, we, we got the plague. Oh, no, 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 over there, that's that's brain fever. You you don't want to go over there. Um, yeah. Oh, no, over there, that's uh, that's just uh, uh, terrible skin boils, uh, Rudellian skin boils. Like, just don't even go over there. I, in fact, just just leave. Just, I'm waiting for the yeah. next reference from Rudellian fill-in-the-blank. Yeah. Right? It, it'd be any, anything terrible. Anything terrible, yeah. If only those Rodellians wore their masks. Yeah, We wouldn't exactly. be in this problem. See, if only, if only they would. If only. Yeah. Hey, uh, did you notice that Julian said that he left a patient on the operating table when he brought over replacement <laughs> bonsai to the O'Brien's? Like, I hope he was kidding. I hope this was just wacky Julian doctor humor. But maybe he wasn't because he's sort of uh, clueless and self-absorbed sometimes, too. Yeah, it was that was... um. He was. I think he was caught in his own lie, and he's just like, "I'm just going to own this." Yeah, I'm just going to own this one. I yeah. think so too. Yeah. <laughs> um, there's a lot of great stuff to say about Rom in this episode, but one of my favorite moments is how charming it was to see him ingratiate himself with that swing shift and yeah. and drinking Rectagino with them. Rectagino. It was just he was so yep. proud of that and just going that extra effort to want to be a part of the team. It was lovely. I don't ever want Rom to lose the enthusiasm, the zest that he has for his career. No. I love seeing that. I love seeing that. It's so, it just comes by so honestly. Yeah. And I, I have many things to say about Rom uh, later on in this episode. Good, good. Um, here's a creepy thing. Uh, apparently from anywhere in the station, and maybe it's because Miles is, you know, of a certain level of clearance, you can just do a medical scan of someone in their room without their knowledge. It seems illegal, doesn't it? It seems a little wrong. Uh, Unless it's like a, uh, you know, like on an iPhone, you can share your location with someone and they can share it back to you. Maybe that's like an understood thing between Miles and Keiko. Like we'll share location and medical data. Maybe, uh, okay, I'll, I'll give them that. That's the only way that I could justify it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You gave your girlfriend a tracking device? Yeah. <laughs> 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 uh, so I, I see this a lot in TV and because they're trying to make a dramatic point. But have you ever or known anyone who's been so angry that they shattered a glass in their hand like the way Miles did when, when Keiko or Demon Keiko knelt you know, in front of Molly? I, I don't think I have. Now, I've broken probably three dozen glasses by washing them in the last 
several years of my life. I've but done that too. It's tragic. Oh, it's terrible. Yeah. Um, that's why I always have to buy extra whenever I buy any glasses. But but yeah. no, I've never quite been that worked up. And I don't think I've ever met anybody who has either. But man, now I'm waiting for that day. I'll tell you what, like, just just for the edification of our listeners, like wine glasses, the rims of wine glasses, when you're washing them, yes, those are very susceptible to cracking. You'll usually bust the chunk. Yeah. Right? Out. It yeah. doesn't shatter. It just kind of cracks. Yeah. But... An actual like whiskey tumbler, those are very, very sturdy. Yes. So Miles was really mad. <laughs> <laughs> he was. Yes, he was. Hey, um, I want to point out a really simple special effect, but it's really effective. After the party, Keiko is putting dishes like the there's the half eaten cake and there's stuff in the replicator, and the camera tilts uh, to uh, it pans rather to follow her from the replicator over to Miles and back again. And at the split second that that happens, you hear a whoosh, and there's a little flash of light in the periphery, and then that dish is gone, so she's ready to put the next one in. And obviously, you know, it's a stagehand off-screen just removing that dish and resetting, but it's so perfect. I I love Mm -hmm. it when just the easiest, simplest effect is so effective on screen. And we now know that, uh, you know, what happens with unreplicated or un, uneaten yeah. replicated food. It yes. just goes back into energy. Yeah. Although if there's a half-eaten cake at the end of the party, I would rather that that little door just go to my kitchen. Uh, you just, you know, just send that over. That'll be fine. You could always replicate a half-eaten cake <laughs> Replic- if you to. There we go. It's like, here, why, why have a whole cake? You just have the half-eaten uh, leftovers. <laughs> and it, that is immediately followed by that bedroom scene and wow is that chilling uh in an episode that has many good moments many good character moments that is a really chilling scene of her manipulation of him and his just resignation to be there um i thought that was really nicely played i think that it really plays to rosalind chow's strengths this particular character because yeah she's just she's very driven and very focused and and it and she's really good at putting you at at a sense of uneasiness, mm-hmm. you know, you just never really feel settled like with, with her motivations. Yeah. And it's, I don't know. She does a great job at it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, um, one of the things that bugged me though, and I don't know, maybe it's just because and it happens in different series and, and you get like up to a point in the series and we're in season five where you would think that the crew understands certain, uh, things about other crew members. When, when they found chief O'Brien, in the promenade, and they found Keiko when she after she fell. They bring her to the infirmary, but Odo and the, and, and Captain Cisco start grilling the chief, God, like you're, hardcore. You're right. Like, yeah. what are you doing on the promenade? It's like <laughs> I don't know. I was hungry. <laughs> yeah. You know, I had to go to the bathroom. Yeah, but, it's a free station. Come on. Exactly. Yeah. That's that's what I kind of took away. It was like you, you know, you're only allowed to be at certain points in the station at certain points in times on your shift. Yeah. I'm like, is that how it works? That's a little or, weird. Right? Yeah. And I was like, mm, what are you doing there? You're not supposed to be there. And I'm like, <laughs> um, when is this a police state, Odo? Yeah. Uh, right now. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh, it's like, by the way, um, anyone want to ask me about how my wife's doing? Because yeah. she fell like two stories like onto her back. Yeah. She might be dead. That's a good point. It was probably a little dialogue tweak that needed to be made Just there saying. to make it a little more sensitive. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I do love the contrivance of the countdown clock 
it's like every now and then when a show uses that and does it to really good effect, and I, I thought in here uh, they they made the most of that. We should have seen like something like a twenty four type reference. I is, you know? well, sure to see that, or you know, there's a famous episode of Mash where they have a little stopwatch running in the corner. Oh, sure, sure. Which I, yeah. I always think of that one. Okay, so the big, big observation kind of nitpick that I had was when the chief was working and he was looking for a spanner of some kind. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden, Dax shows up and she's like, what are you? It's like, chief, I need to talk to you. And the chief's like, what are you doing up at 3 a.m.? Yeah. You know? And she's like, well, I can't fall asleep because I got to, you know, because I need to look at anomalies. Anomalies relax me. I'm like, oh, okay. Because if it wasn't for this scene, yeah. there would be no way of knowing that certain things on the station were getting sabotaged. <laughs> ooh, ooh, nice, nicely done. Nicely I didn't done. do it. The chief did it. The chief did. said sabotage. <laughs> and I was proud that he said that. Yes. But yeah, it was just weird. It was like, um, come on, guys. You know, come on, writers. You know, like, yeah. It, it was so forced, in my opinion, and. It almost looked like it was a scene that was dropped in because it seemed like Terry was actually struggling a little bit with, with some of the delivery. So, see, it's funny that you would say that because I, I kept thinking uh, every time I watched it, it felt like there was a missing moment earlier with Dax being on the trail of what was happening before that moment. Yeah. Because that, that's the only way you could really justify it with her being uh, the the way that she was at that hour, you, you had to have let on earlier, like, oh, she's on to something. She's not sure what it is. So she will, in this very awkward way, create this reason to have a conversation with him. So you felt yeah. like something was just a little off in that. Scene. Yep, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Okay. It was a little, little too easy, a little too contrived. Um, Hey, here's a very obvious but funny bit. I do like Miles and Keiko coming back through the uh, airlock after they've been out in front of the wormhole. And you just see Odo stroking his jaw. <laughs> because, you know, it's one of those things where on Star Trek, like, all these terrible things can have, you know, Data can take over the Enterprise, nearly kill all of them, but next week he's going to be fine. This week, uh, uh, Chief O'Brien, who is in his right mind... He's not the one who's taken over by the anomaly, can do these terrible uh, uh, modifications to Deep Space Nine that aren't immediately endangering anybody there, but he is lying about it. He gets one of his co-workers thrown in the brig. So it's sort of like, you know nothing's going to happen next week, but you have to show that there's some recognition, some some response to what just happened. So just having Odo still like, I know what happened, <laughs> you know, that, that worked. Yeah. And, and that's another kind of example, another, and, 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 uh, in sequence of episodes, because the episode that we covered before this was, um, North of the battle to the strong. Um, mm -hmm. and that's when Odo injured himself trying to capture the, the Dabo criminals. And right. now, he took a he took a shot right to the face and got knocked out by O'Brien. Yes, yeah. And he usually would have probably just kind of phased through that, like gelatinously phased through that, and then apprehended the chief. Right. Yeah. Not today. Yeah. <laughs> My pitch for romantic comedy of the year. Keiko possessed by a parade meets Miles possessed by the things from Power Play. Hilarity and Susan someone brings a baby for breakfast at a bar.
We will get right back to our assignment on the assignment in a moment. But first, a word from Raycon. You know, John, you and I were talking earlier about, you know, wanting to get out, get some fresh air, take long walks, and just to be able to enjoy kind of like the the solitude of the time that we have during this whole pandemic crisis. And when we take our long walks or when we sit at home, we like to be able to listen to either our favorite audiobooks or favorite music. And the most important thing to have are a really good dependable pair of earbuds. Dependable that last long battery life-wise, that are very form-fitting, very comfortable. And that's where Raycon comes in. Yeah, I I have to say, I have tried so many in-ear earbuds because, honestly, I don't love in-ear earbuds. Like, the ones that come with your phone, the hard plastic, I always give those away because they don't fit me well. I don't think the sound quality is great. They're just not for me. But when I tried these, and, and I love that Raycon calls them the everyday E25 earbuds. And there are other models too, but these are my favorite. They are small. They are lightweight. I forget that I have them in. And because they have multiple sizes of silicone ear tips that you custom fit, you get a perfect fit every time and it isolates outside noise as well. So it's really the best of everything that I wanted. There's no cable. So maybe I'm wearing a mask. I, it, it doesn't compete with a cable there. Um, You put them back in the little charging box and they get a full charge very quickly. And I find that I can listen for hours and hours, uh, podcasts, audiobooks, music. I forget that I have them in, but I have the comfort of having that uh, extra thing to listen to when I'm out. So unlike some of the other wireless options that you were discussing, John, Raycon earbuds are actually really stylish. I love how small they are. I love that they don't have the stem yeah. Quote, unquote, the stem. Right. They fit really nicely in your ear. They're very discreet. There's no dangling wires because they're wireless. There's no stems, as I said before. So they are, I know that, you know, we're not supposed to think of them as an accessory, but they kind of are, mm-hmm. right? They're, they're, they're an accessory to our everyday carry. Yeah. The other thing I like about them also, and this is probably, when I, when I try them out for the first time, probably one of the most important points is that their wireless connectivity through Bluetooth was immediate. It was so quick. Isn't there something very satisfying about that when you open the box and you hear it go Raycon and then it's it's connected just right away? (laughs) Right. So there wasn't that hassle. You didn't have to go to the instruction manuals. It just worked the way it should. So that's the kind of earbuds that you need. And if you would like to get them, here's how. Now's the time to get the latest and greatest for Raycon. Get 15% off your order at buyraycon.com slash mission log when you use the code mission log 15. That's buyraycon.com slash mission log and use the code mission log 15 for 15% off Raycon wireless earbuds. Buyraycon.com slash mission log. All right. So Norman, I, I feel like this is an interesting episode. To me, this is a plot and character driven episode. And yes, I, I know that any good piece of TV or movie, well, it should have a strong plot. It should have strong character. But this is really not one of those that is a deep issue or philosophical question at hand. I mean, we can talk about should Miles go along with the plan or should he warn the others if it puts her in danger, the needs of the many, that, that kind of question. But I, I feel like that is almost academic for this episode. That, that's really not why we're here for this episode. This is just about putting Miles to the test again, <laughs> as we have done many times. It's about 
uh, well, certainly as an actor, letting Rosalind Chow stretch a bit. And just how do we get out of the situation? So that that's that's not to put this one down to say that there's something wrong with it because of that, but that's the focus here. So for this part of our show, I feel like there's not a lot of really heavy stuff to get into. Why is it when an actor, when they get a role that's that plays against their type, is the role that you're you remember them most for or enjoy the most mm-hmm. for the most part? You know, like, say, Leonard Nimoy as Mirror Spock. Everyone remembers Mirror Spock, right? Or, well, even Mirror Kirk, yeah. for that matter. <laughs> but when, or, say, um, anyone who plays against uh, the, the standard, typical character that everyone knows. Say, like, uh, anyone in the Mirror Darkly. Yeah. Uh, or, say, um, well, Mirror Dax. <laughs> um, Hello. Let me cut my thoughts, Mirror Dax. <laughs> but in this case, you know, I mean, I think that Rosalind Chow was actually super, super... Um, effective as this character. Not only because you know that she was channeling this Pa Wraith, but Keiko is very kind of uh, specific, Yeah, I guess is the way. Specific in the way that she treats Miles. Yeah. There has not been a lot of depth there. There's not been a lot of... um, uh, There haven't been multiple facets of that character. And uh, honestly, we've kind of made fun of on a mission log many times that the... Keiko and Miles' relationship is probably one of the more grating and less interesting relationships in Star Trek. This really got to turn that upside down for a minute, and and that was cool. Now, the downside is you only get to do an episode like this once, really. Um, I, I sort of find going back to the Mirror Universe tedious if you do it too many times. Something like this with the Paw Wraith, gosh, who knows, maybe we'll get them again. But you kind of, you can't do that to Keiko again because you're just going back to the well too many times. Right, so sure. it's a bit of a double-edged sword to to introduce something like this. But for a moment, we got to step out of that normal relationship that we've had with those two characters. Well, we can talk about somebody who, in their right mind, has really grown and who we both really responded to, and that's Rom. And... Mm-hmm. I started my note by saying poor Rom because, look, he's smart and he's capable, but he's also innocent, which is great, but that also makes him a target here for O'Brien. Like I, I would feel like what we don't have on screen is that Chief O'Brien and Rom need to have a really deep heart-to-heart after this. Because he got used by the chief. He got thrown in the brig because of the chief. And what the chief was doing was something personal that he felt was right, but it was still personal. So between that and and so much else that happens in this episode, I would really hope that we would see some repercussions in future episodes. I mean, Miles punched Odo. He he lied to Rom <laughs> yeah, he and he forced him to sabotage the station systems. He lied to his superiors. Like there's all this stuff happening. And I, I get it. Very extreme circumstances. But how would that even hold up in a court martial? <laughs> See, okay, so with Rom though, I, I maybe I'm seeing it differently. Okay. Um because I, I, when when he kind of conscripted Ron or Shanghai Ron to do what <laughs> yes. you know could, to do that, and obviously he was playing on on Rom's enthusiasm mm-hmm. and and his eagerness to to prove himself. Mm-hmm. But when he told 
this is how I got it. When he told Rom, like, don't tell the captain, don't tell Odo, don't tell Worf, don't tell anyone of the command staff, I was kind of thinking that Rom's the kind of guy who would do that, right? Just slip and mention it. So I always thought that that was the way that the chief was trying to communicate to the command staff through Rom by Rom just admitting that he was working on secret stuff for the chief that he couldn't talk about. Oh, okay, see, so you're you're much more optimistic than I am, um, okay. <laughs> because because to me, I looked at this as this is a violation of trust, and by saying to Rom, you can't talk about this. You know, at, not only am I using you for something that you should not be doing, and that shows that I can exploit you uh, by by doing it. Um, not again, not that any of this is going through Chief O'Brien's mind, but I'm talking about what are the repercussions afterward. Mm-hmm. Then it, it it sort of shows this potential for abuse within that chain of command by saying oh, sure. like, oh, no, no, it's perfectly reasonable that a senior officer would. And I know the chief is not an officer, but a senior could tell you don't report this. Don't, uh, you know, don't let slip if anything seems out of the ordinary to you. And um, maybe I'm just going down a much more cynical road here, but I, it, it, it seems like this is a very bad lesson for Rom to learn early on. I know he's not going into Starfleet, but mm-hmm. he's, he's within the structure. And this right. sort of reinforces a message that's like, wow, you know, day two... I'm already being told to do something that I shouldn't be doing, and I can't even report it if there's something that doesn't seem right. Well, that's kind of tropish, though. I mean, how many times in like in in uh, either cinema or on TV where kind of like the the veteran will take like the new guy around the block and say, "Hey, Junior, you know, if you want to like, it's kind of like Bud Fox and Gordon Gecko. You want to play the game, uh-huh. you got to be able to break the rules, and I'm going to use you as my buffer." To break all the rules. You're going yeah. to get me information, which is against, you know, trading laws, but you're going to get me the information I need to be able to, you know, uh, you know, uh, get the leg up on people when the, when the trading days open. But the thing is that I, that's weird. It's like, I didn't see it at the, at the start. I always thought that the chief, uh, the chief was trying to find a way to communicate outside that. Um, but when he, when he served up uh, Rom as his patsy, I was like, mm-hmm. dude, that is low. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> Yeah, I was like, come on, yeah. man! It's like a, but and so it really kind of makes you question. Uh, and I don't know if Rom questions it uh, himself, but it makes you question: Did Rom earn his right to be on the day shift, or did the chief feel guilty about betraying his trust? See, that's another good question, and and that would if. If I were innocent like Rom, then I would uh, maybe persist in the idea that I earned it and that the chief is looking out for my best interest. But only hours ago, the chief was using me to do this thing. You know, yeah. it, and Quark's the kind of brother he would be like. You know, the only reason why you got the day shift right. because the chief, you know, the chief uh, used you to do what he needed to do. You didn't earn it, right? And then you know, and then Rom would be like. Oh, uh, yes, I did. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. <laughs> exactly. So poor Rom, I, I love him, but man, I just, oh, I, I hope that they had a nice long talk after the fact. And, and I hope that Cisco laid down the law after the fact as well, because I, I don't think that I can make a case to say that what the chief did was completely wrong, but there's still something about it that is uneasy here. 
Speaking of disease and unease, let's talk about that party scene. Yeah. Whoa. Yeah. To me, <laughs> this was the most relevant, relatable moment in maybe all of Star Trek <laughs> that has ever been made. <laughs> yeah, ever been in a social situation where you and someone else, you're, you're coming into it with your own history, your own agenda, your own problem, and you are putting on a show for everyone else and just barely holding it in until maybe it snaps, or maybe it doesn't. Maybe it snaps after you leave that party or that family gathering or whatever. Man, I, this that scene was gold because it was so uncomfortable. Right, yeah. Yeah, yeah it was very tense. Yeah. A very tense in a very realistic sense. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So I, I, I hand it to them for sure for putting this very uh, relatable slice of human experience, just just dropping it right there into this little sci-fi fantasy show. Well, that's what I like about Deep Space Nine a lot is that you get to see these side stories. It's not about just being on the bridge the entire time, or in this case, being an ops the entire time. Right. And and I think that another discussion point that, that I came away with is, and it wasn't easy to see in this episode, but it is kind of relevant, and that's kind of being the risks of being in a military family, mm. right? Mm-hmm. And I know that Starfleet isn't military per se, but let's just use the name military for the nomenclature sure. of, of, you know, this point. In, in uh, Nor the Battle to the Strong, the reason why uh, Cisco was so worried is because Jake is, by extension, part of a military family. He wouldn't have been there on that planet on Agilon Prime. I pulled that from memory, folks, Ooh. just to let you know. I, yeah, I, right? I can vouch for that. That's very good, right. yeah. So he was, you know, he was on Agilon Prime, and he was in harm's way in a military war zone. That's mm-hmm. the risk of being part of a military family. It's the same thing here. Keiko is on Bajor, and she accidentally released one of the Pa Wraiths, and she brought that uh, Pa Wraith back to the station, knowing that the Pa Wraith, knowing that she can exploit Miles to do what she needs to do. Yeah. But the thing is that that's putting another family member at risk, being part of this military family. So I, I found that kind of interesting and relevant here, just in terms of do you choose to put your family at risk when you have a family being in Starfleet, or do you choose not to have a family so you avoid those situations? Well, Because right? there are some people that don't want to have families just for that reason. Yeah, yeah. I mean, take it back to TNG, the first time we get a kid in the cast of Star Trek or on the, the crew of the Enterprise, and here's this kid. Yeah, he's smart, he's capable, but he's still a kid. And that then raises like, okay, uh, now as a doctor, I've got a couple of responsibilities, a responsibility to my job, but also to the child who I'm raising. To the captain, it's this other responsibility, not just to the crew and the well-being of the ship, but, oh, there is a child here. And if I do something like set the auto-destruct, well, it's not just the crew who signed up for this, it's the kid who's along for the ride as well. It it Mm -hmm. gives this whole other dimension to it, which I, I, I think is... You know, I think arguably is being done better on DS9 than probably we saw before on TNG. But it it does fit in well to this question that you're raising about, okay, what is Starfleet? What is that mission? Because it's not specifically military, but it is quasi-military enough that people are signing up for a role in a hierarchy where their dedication is to the job, to the mission, and the things that come along as a distraction, then, then the, when they are there with you, 
I it gives a, a whole other perspective on where your loyalties, where your concerns, and where your direction goes. Bruce Greenwood's, uh, um, his uh, Admiral Pike, or Captain Pike at the time, Admiral Pike, uh, in the movies, well, he was an admiral then, he was captain still. Mm-hmm. He said to Kirk, he said that when he was trying to recruit Kirk um, in Iowa, he said that Starfleet is an, like an exploratory and peacekeeping armada. Yes, <laughs> which I still think is wonderful and hilarious. Yeah. Like, you could not juxtapose the two ideals yes. more succinctly in one sentence. Yes. Right? Yes. Because, because the other armada that we knew about, the most famous armada in history, the Spanish armada that conquered most of like the seafaring lanes of like the, what, like the 1600s. Right. Right. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's weird because, like, you know, Starfleet has all the trappings of a military, right? Mm-hmm. Um, even Kirk says, you know, we don't, you know, we don't start fights. We'll defend ourselves if necessary. Uh, injustice. Basically, they saved Wesley from uh, execution because they had bigger phasers yeah. and because reasons. <laughs> so, you know, it's um, but but what I'm saying is that it's it's very interesting that Deep Space Nine focuses a lot about the fallout of what happens to military uh, relationships, military families. I mean, something could have happened badly to Molly just because, by extension, she was connected to the chief. Right. 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 As, as his daughter. So yeah. like like Jake was. So that's one thing I thought that was really interesting. The other thing that I found interesting uh, in this episode, and I didn't think this uh, uh, at first, but mm-hmm. there is kind of like a, a direct association with kind of like the Judeo-Christian or Roman Catholic, I guess, parallels or, or similarities between the pa race and the prophets to Satan and or the devil to God mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. this case, you know, because you have... Basically, the angels, the archangels, you know, those who opposed God's will were cast down and uh, well, basically created hell. Yeah. You know, Lucifer, yeah. you know, he was like uh, he was the he was the number one and he got you know kicked out of paradise. He got kicked out of the celestial temple. Right. Much like these paw rays did. Right. And I, I found that interesting. This interesting that these celestial beings, these paw rays and these prophets or the, the true prophets and the false prophets are are uh, hailed by the Bajorans as gods. But what are gods but just otherworldly beings that are unexplained? In Babylon 5, uh, there's a very similar dynamic going on between two races, two very ancient races called the Vorlons and the Shadows, um, who are like of the same type of kind of like galactic power as the Parates and the, uh, and the Prophets. But a lot of the lower alien races hail them as gods, but they're not gods. You know, they're mm-hmm. not, they're just older unexplained races, much like in Stargate, the Egyptians, they were you know, they, they didn't get their technology from being um, advanced. They got their technologies from being alien and the slaves hailed these pharaohs as gods. So that's where I, I kind of like, like that they kind of start delving into this aspect a little bit more by introducing the paw race. Because correct me if I'm wrong, it's the first time that we've mentioned the paw race. Yeah, yeah, that we know yep. of. Yeah, even though it was so written esta- earlier, this is the first time it's actually made it to screen. Yeah. So then now they're establishing like a whole new, uh, a, a whole new element with the prophets and the paw race. Now that these two superpowers, you know, that are at play here, um, and it's interesting that they're. They are aliens, but still people believe that they are some type of religious deities. Yeah, 
Well, look, I, all I can say to that is uh, I will warn you now, I will warn our audience now that um, I, I'm probably just going to be driven crazy by this whole idea of uh, still the Bajorans worshipping aliens in a wormhole that you can literally just go up and see and hang out with. And uh, when you're trying to figure out who are the the opposition to those prophets, uh, that they're literally beings in a cave that you can go see. You don't want to, <laughs> but they're just there. They're part of the natural world and part of the existence that we understand about the universe. And yet... Uh, they still just choose to worship them and build a whole religion around them. I will never get over that. Oh, I'm, I'm looking forward to many, many, many conversations about this because I'm sure that these power rays will probably pop up again. There might be a rant. Now it's Molly's turn to be taken over by an evil non-corporeal alien entity, right? Maybe not. Let's see if Norman and John have a better idea. So now that we have all of our technical modifications out of the way, we have tech the tech. It's time for us to do, as we always do at the end of Mission Log, to get in our wrap-up to discover those morals, meanings, and messages, no matter how large or how small, and see how we feel about the episode at the end of the day. So, John, how did this episode ship up for you? Um, I, you know, I'll definitely lead with the positive. Uh, this is my favorite Keiko episode. I'll tell you that right off the bat. Um, oh, that's good. And, and stylistically, I felt like they did a lot here that felt like a Hitchcock movie. So you have this slow burn of a threat just hanging over every scene. And then you have this great, we talked about the party scene, the maintaining of that image of the happy family for everyone else to see, but we know what's actually going on. And then you have the psychological manipulation. Um, I loved all of that. Uh, I, I thought it was done extremely well. And um, even in the context of DS9 and, and sci-fi fantasy, I don't know how to make necessarily a judgment here if it's realistic, and those are in big quotes, realistic, <laughs> that these characters would behave this way. Like, would Miles actively and consistently lie to everyone? Again, that's kind of an academic question for this episode. But taken on its own, I think the story works. But to me, you have to take it on its own. I, I don't know if the overall context here really works that well. There are threads that connect this to the rest of DS9. O'Brien must suffer. And yes, we, we get emotional suffering out of him in this episode. We have the introduction of the paw wraiths. We establish their relationship to the wormhole aliens. Um, I get it. You know, the, all those things are, are pieces of DS9. But it's just sort of, uh, for better or for worse, sort of like lifting this... Um, you know, very episodic kind of classic sci-fi trope and then just plopping it down into the middle of DS9. It is a well-done version of that. I thought of, I don't know if you thought of this one too, I thought of TOS, I thought of Return to Tomorrow. You know, you had the benevolent... Oh, yeah, sure, sure. Yeah, right? You have the benevolent Sargon uh, occupying Kirk, uh, but then you had uh, uh, Hinnok occupying Spock and uh, he, of course, the, the nefarious of the group. And... Um, and that was a very interesting story. Uh, that that was cool too. But I, I don't know if this one brought me necessarily so much more to then 
drag me into a deeper appreciation of something specifically happening in DS9. I like the characters. I like Rom in this a lot. Um, again, I like the mood that they established. When I say that it holds up as an episode, it holds up just because it was fun. They they mm. they nailed a mood, um, but I don't think this is necessarily one of those episodes that I have to point to and say like, oh, this is the best of what DS9 can do, um, yeah. because it feels a little irrelevant to DS9 as a whole. So um, yeah, I I enjoyed it, but I I kind of take it down a notch just because of that. Uh, what about you, Norman? Well, you know, in a storyline that takes place over, say, it's like 20, or a season that takes place over, say, what, 26 episodes, mm-hmm. um, there are, obviously, there's the core competency of the narrative through line that you want to get to throughout the course of the season, and then there are going to be callbacks in it uh, in any of the filler episodes. Mm-hmm. But this episode doesn't, at least for right now, doesn't really have uh, that in its structure with maybe the exception of the paw race, because it's something new mm-hmm. and I don't know about, and I'm sure that there are deep space nine fans out there that are saying like, well, just wait. Yeah. And I will. <laughs> sure. I will. But of remember, course. we'll I am, be here I am, for uh, it. Yeah. Right. I'm analyzing this on the merits of what I have seen. Yes. Not what I'm going to see. Yeah. So what I find most troubling about this episode is that, and, and please take this in the spirit of how I'm saying it. It is wonderfully unproblematic. Hmm. In every way possible. Mm-hmm. There are no real risks being taken in this episode. Mm-hmm. There are no major character developments being ta- uh, being made in this episode, with maybe a little bit of an uptick of Rom. You know, Rom gets his little, uh, yeah. he gets a slice of a, yep. of a, uh, of a promotion, um, whether or not he earned it or whether or not the chief was guilty about uh, or guilted into giving him that promotion. Yeah. Um, but I guess my biggest critique about this episode is that it's just kind of benign. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's it's uh, one of those kind of episodes that if you if you strip away all of the Star Trek accoutrement from it, it's just a science fiction episode. Yeah. And it's well done. Yeah. It's well done. Totally. You know, um, mm-hmm. It's it's a body snatcher hostage episode. There you go. Right. right? Um, and I, I think the other thing that I have a, an issue with with this episode is that it just feels misplaced in the timing of where we are in the season when we're coming off of probably one of the best episodes of Deep Space Nine that I've seen yet to date, and that's Nor the Battle to the Strong. That yeah. episode was phenomenal. Yeah. And this is the follow-up. And it's not like there are episodes that are filler episodes that are follow-up episodes that have something at least to do with the previous episode in some kind of spirit or some type of energy. This has none of that. <laughs> you know, you're you making know. a good point here, and and the more you talk about this, I wonder if this would have. You could take the exact same episode and park it in like early season two, and it might have felt very different. It might have felt more earned or better placed there, but it just comes at a weird time in our rewatch here in early mm-hmm. season five. And, yeah. and and it's odd because it, it shouldn't really matter that much. A good episode is a good episode. And this is a good episode, but its biggest sin is being inconsequential, like you said. And you're, yeah, you're, this is, uh, you're following up again, like a very, very emotionally impactful episode. Yeah. And I think like maybe, maybe it would have like been better suited to follow up, like looking for Parmok in all the wrong places. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, 
I, I think right now one of my biggest critiques of Deep Space Nine as a whole, at least for the seasons that I have seen, is that you have very huge peaks and valleys of very high emotionally gripping episodes and very low, very kind of average, like benign episodes, like I said. like They just don't really serve a purpose, mm-hmm. per se, mm-hmm. aside from just filling an episode slot. You know, something, I mean, there is something to be said about uh, today's type of television where you're only telling like a, a 13 or 14 episode season. That means there's no fat. Yeah. You right. know, there's no fat, there's no filler. It's all, uh, it's all steak. Right. You know, to use that analogy. And I felt that this episode was a lot of fat. Yeah. And fat can be good. Fat can be delicious. It was tasty. Be, you know, it, it was tasty. You know? Yeah. Um, well, look, I, I'll just uh, come clean and say that I, for me, I really didn't find a moral meaning message to discuss here. I don't think this episode is really trying to say anything. I think it's just giving us this kind of fun ride of uh, watching O'Brien sweat and watching Keiko be tough and watching Rom being the, the delightful innocent that he is. But I'm not really finding a takeaway here where I can go like, oh, that's the episode where they're really talking about this. I'm not finding it. How about you? Well, it's. Um, I think it's it's safe to say that the the Keiko and Miles story was you know it's very tropish and there's not a lot to be mined from there. But I do think that there is something to be mined a little bit from Rom's story, and I I love the fact that Rom Rom is the kind of person that you want in your life because he's a good honest hardworking person. He wants to earn. He wants to earn and come by it honestly, and he's loyal. You know, he's, he's loyal to his brother, he's loyal to the chief, he's loyal to his job, he's loyal to his fellow co-workers, and he wants to just be this positive kind of uh, ball of energy. And it's important to have that in your life. It's important to, like, go into a, a workplace environment and, hey, you know what, I'm not having the greatest day, but, man, if I talk to Rom, it's going to be a better day. Yeah. You know, it's, gonna, <laughs> it's just going to be, like, he's going to say something wacky or offbeat just because that guy, his engine just doesn't quit. You know, he is, <laughs> he is, just, he is just going and going and going. And I think yeah. that's, yeah. That's, uh, that's something fun to have around. Um, but the funny thing is, is that in, in this series, probably more so than any of the series that I've seen so far, all of my favorite characters, with the exception of Quark, are secondary characters, non-main cast characters. Mm. And all of them are alien. Hmm. So my favorite characters so far are Rom, Quark, Garrick, and Dukat. Okay, wow. For, okay. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And the reasons why is because I I feel that. Oh, and Morn, of course. Of course. Of course. Yeah, you have to. Right? Come on. Yeah. yeah. But I I just believe that, or at least from what I've seen, is that each one of these characters represents a very extremist part of the human experience, and none of them are human. Right. Right. Yeah. So you have, you know, you have Quark, the ultra capitalist. You have Dukat, like the ultra nihilist. You know, you have Garrick, like the, uh, the, the ultra, the paranoid and the ultra conspirator. <laughs> and then you have Rom, kind of like the ultra optimist. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And none of them are human, but they all together combine to make a lot of what you find interesting in a human being for various reasons. 
Mission Log is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment, executive producer Rod Roddenberry. Our website and your opportunity to comment and connect with us is missionlogpodcast.com. If you'd like to support Mission Log directly, you can do so at patreon.com slash missionlog. Enjoy all the great Roddenberry podcasts at podcast.roddenberry.com, where you'll find Women at Warp, Priority One, The Trek Files, your daily Star Trek news, and Shabam. Shabam. And for more Star Trek news and discussion, be sure to visit trekmovie.com. On the next mission log, Trials and Tribulations. Some of the music for mission log provided by Warp 11. Online at warp11.com. I'm glad they got this parade out of the way so it will never bother anyone again. That was a close one. Could you imagine if there were more of them? And transmission. Whoa, 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 whoa. Hey, 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 hey. John, are you okay? Whoa, whoa, hey, look, look at that. Norman, I'm, wait, I, I, I'm recording. Did, did, did we do a show? I, I, I don't remember, but I, 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 I feel, I feel like we did a show. Sit down, sit down. I'm going to pour us a single Irish malt. We're going to have to have a talk. Podcast.roddenberry.com the Roddenberry Podcast Network.